virgin birth is an important doctrine, a primary doctrine that everyone should understand. And in today's message, we're going to talk about that. Thank you for listening to Voices Along the Way. I'm Gene Brooks. This is a sermon I preached at Grace Evangelical Church in Congo Town, Liberia, at Christmas time. I hope you enjoy it. Fear not, that's what the angel said to Mary when he first encountered her. She obviously was afraid. Fear not is what the angel said to Joseph when he first encountered him. Fear not is what the angel said first of all to the shepherds. Do not fear. Don't be scared, like we say here in, in Liberia. Don't be scared. And so the, the angel, if angel came to Monrovia or, or to uh, Nimbo, would say something like that, right? Okay? And, and that's important. That's very important. In all this season of the year that we have, there's, uh, there's an important doctrine that helps us not to fear. And that doctrine is something we often overlook when we celebrate the, uh, the birth of Jesus Christ that gives us freedom from fear. And we're going to talk about that today. That doctrine is called the virgin birth. The virgin birth. It's been an important enough doctrine to be held with great confidence by the church for 1,850 years. And then it's been an important enough doctrine since then for enlightenment liberals to vilify it, to negate it, to downplay it, to say it was nothing, to impugn it. And so the main argument that we see against the virgin birth is supposedly, according to them, it's insignificant, it's irrelevant, it's not important. But the fact that liberal theologians make it their punching bag over and over and over proves the fact that it is important or they wouldn't be talking about it. I wouldn't be trying to dissuade us from belief in the virgin birth. So we're going to look at what the Bible says today about this vital doctrine that some people think is controversial, but it's really not. It's in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Read with me uh, in your Bible. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. This virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. Fear not. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob Forever, His kingdom will never end. 
How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Luke wrote this passage of scripture to teach believers that the virgin birth happened without the agency of a man, was free from corruption, and established Jesus' ancestry from David, his identity as the last Adam, and his heir as heir to David's throne. So I want to show you today what God's word says about the virgin birth. First of all, what we're going to talk about today is what the virgin birth did. That's from verses 26 and 27. The virgin birth established Jesus' ancestry from David. You see where the text says, To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Verse 27 says that Mary is a Parthenos, she is a virgin. She is a young, unmarried girl, 12 to 15 years old, who has never had contact with a man. She is bound by legal marriage contract to wed Joseph, who is of the house of David, yet she is still living with her family. And so, while there was no contact between the two permitted... Mary was still considered Joseph's wife. She's still troubled. She's very troubled. And she's perplexed, the Bible says, because she, she had not yet known a man. See in verse 34. She, but she's much different from Zechariah, who is in the previous passage. The priest who goes in before God in the temple and stands before the altar and when the angel Gabriel appears to him, he responds completely in unbelief. But here is a young girl who has no experience, who doesn't know anything, who's uneducated. And the angel Gabriel appears to her and in her simple faith, she believes. She said, this is unbelievable, but may it be to me, I'm the Lord's servant. And so we see that when he meets her in 20. Seven he, and 28, he says to her, first of all, that she is favored. You are highly favored. The Lord is with you. You see, favor is not connected with planting your seed. Favor is not co connected with going to the prophet. Favor doesn't have anything to do with earning your way forward in the kingdom by doing good works. Favor doesn't have anything with God to do with any of the false teachings that we're hearing in many of our churches in Liberia. Fa favor is connected in, with simple trust in God's character and faithfulness. That's where favor comes from. Mary models that for us. She receives it. She said, that's what you said. That's what I believe. I'll take it. I will receive it. 
And so this favor that comes to her, while Zechariah the priest had asked, well, give me a sign that this is true. Mary just said, may it be to me as you've said. And so there's a difference here between Mary and, and uh, David, and Mary and Zechariah. I'm thinking about David because Jesus here is said that he is a true descendant of David through his mother, Mary, and her ancestor, Nathan, who is a son of David. Now, we see that in Luke chapter 3 and in 1 Chronicles chapter 3 and in Romans chapter 1 and in 2 Timothy chapter 2. We see that. We see that, the, that very clearly through the genealogies, you can med, go through the genealogies and you can look at them in the Bible and see clearly that Mary is a descendant of David through the man Nathan. Now Matthew gives a different lineage. Matthew gives a lineage of Joseph's royal lineage that comes through Solomon. We see it in Matthew chapter 1. You can check it out on your own. And he shows Jesus' legal connection through the lineal heir of David's throne. See, if Joseph, if Israel had been king, and if one other thing had not happened, Joseph would have been king. But he was a carpenter. Because he was the lineal heir to David's throne. He was the blood, his blood relation is through Mary, we see in Luke chapter 3. But his legal connection was through Joseph. The Lord Jesus is the dynastic heir to David's throne, and he's the only one who can rule with God's blessing. And because God always keeps his promises. Gabriel's announcement to Mary was a fulfillment of a promise made 900 years earlier to King David. Jesus would reign forever on his father David's throne. And so therefore we can fear not because Christ's conception Establish David's ancestry from David. You can be confident in the reliability of the scriptures and the strength of God's commitment to his own promises. I'll just mention one thing that I intended to leave out. But what, he, what the angel Gabriel says to Mary parallels exactly Isaiah 7, 14, which says the virgin shall be with child and shall give birth to a son. Now I don't have time to go into all of that and explain it to you. But when get the angel Gabriel said that to Mary, immediately anyone who had heard the story that Luke was telling, who knew the Old Testament, any Jew who heard it, would have immediately realized this is fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. They would not even have questioned it. The second thing that we see this morning is that the virgin birth established Jesus as the last Adam. He was not only the descendant of David, but he's the last Adam. Verses 28 to 31. Mary was greatly troubled and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. And he tells her not to be afraid, that she's found favor, that she would be with child, give birth to a son. And he would be the son of the Most High. And he would uh, be great and he would inherit the throne of his father David. We see in verses um, 28 to 31 that he says, you will conceive in your womb and will bring forth a son. 
So by his incarnation, by coming in the flesh, Jesus became the last Adam. Just as Adam was the leader and the pattern and the federal head of the flow of sinfulness down through humanity, Jesus becomes the leader, the pattern, and the federal head of a new humanity of saved people who've been redeemed from the curse of the first Adam. You will have a son. This purpose of the divine creative work in in believers is to make a people in the image of God's son. And we see it at operation in the church. So we don't have to fear because of Jesus' conception established him as the last Adam being birthed as a human being through the womb of a girl. You can have confidence that your sins are paid in full and that by identifying with him, your punishment for sin is voided. The third thing that we see here is that the virgin birth established Jesus as the last royal heir to David's throne. He says in verse 32 and 33, the angel says, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. Now, Jesus' virgin birth made it possible for him to rule one day over Israel. Now, you say, well, why why is it so important that he be descended through Nathan and not be descended through Solomon? Why is it important that Mary comes through Nathan? Because the Davidic covenant was transmitted through Solomon and his posterity. Ah, But there's something you need to know. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 36, and Jeremiah, chapter 22, verse 30, we see something that happened that God did. The last king of Judah, King Jehoiakim, a descendant of Solomon and David, he burned the word of God When God's word came to him in a scroll, he set fire to it and burned it. And because he burned the word of God, God decreed that none of his descendants would ever sit on the throne of David. That's in Jeremiah 36, 30. You can check it on your own. That curse was then repeated to his son, Jeconiah, which some places in the Old Testament is called Coniah, a short form. The last king of Judah of David's royal dynasty. We see in Jeremiah 22 verse 30 that that is repeated again. That curse is repeated that no descendant of Jehoiakim will ever sit on the throne of David. Well, that means that Joseph was a descendant of Jehoiakim. He was under the curse. So no son of Joseph could be king. Joseph would never be king. Even though he was in the direct line to be king, He could never be king. So by virgin conception, Jesus avoided the divine curse being descended from David. He comes through Nathan and he receives full title to David's throne through Joseph, his foster father, his legal father, but not his biological father. Jesus didn't come under divine judgment because he was not Joseph's biological son. But being Joseph's eldest legal son, he inherited full title to David's throne. 
So we can fear not, because Christ's conception established his identity as the last heir of David's throne. So you can be confident that Jesus is coming back. Because of the virgin birth, you can be confident in the second coming of Christ. You can be confident in the establishment of his eternal kingdom. You can be confident that one day this man, Jesus, who is also God, will sit on the throne of his father, David, in Jerusalem. You can be confident that he will set right the injustices in this world when he comes. The fourth thing we see is that Jesus' conception had no man involved. This is the way the virgin birth happened. You say, but how did it happen? Yeah, I see what you're saying it did, but I want to know how it happened. Let me explain to you how it happened. Jesus' conception, first of all, had no man involved. The the angel says in verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you is is a phrase with a lot of embedded meaning over time for the Jews. You remember, <coughs> excuse me, you remember uh, Ruth when she said, you spread, told Boaz, spread your wings over me. Spread your shawl over me. It means I will overshadow me. And that means he would take care of her. He would take responsibility for her. When, uh, today when a, a Jewish couple is married, they take a prayer shawl and they put it over the couple and say, God will overshadow you. He will come upon you. And he will make the land fertile. We see a word he's used in Isaiah 32 to say that he will come upon the land and he will make the land fertile. In in Exodus chapter 40, it's a reference to when when the glory came into the tabernacle and the Shekinah presence came in, it overshadowed the tabernacle in the cloud. Same word that we see in Numbers chapter 10 verse 34. In the transfiguration, when the Holy Spirit transfigured Jesus on the mountain, he overshadowed them, it says, in Luke chapter 9. And so we see that over and over. We see this word with full of meaning. Because you see, the the validity of the virgin birth is often attacked, usually along three lines. First of all, people will say, well... Um, text, in the text, we don't see, a, we don't see the word virgin birth. In, in, we don't see it in the scripture. It's often said that it was not, they will claim that it was not in the original text of the Bible, but someone added it later to, to try to elevate the birth of Christ and the person of Christ. The only problem with that argument is that there's not one scrap of evidence anywhere. There's no document anywhere. There's nothing that we can find in any text or in the transmission of any text, in no place can we substantiate the argument that there was an editorial change to the text to make it a virgin birth after the fact. We can't find that anywhere. We, even though people have looked for it now for 175 years, they can't find it. And we have more texts available to us today, over 6,000 manuscripts. If it's there, someone would have found it. Because they want to get their Ph.D., right? So someone would have found it's not there. There's no scrap of evidence 
Another, another uh, way it's attacked is historical. They'll say, well, the early church really didn't believe in it. Even though Matthew and Luke teach it, uh, they wrote about it. They say, well, you know, on, out of all of the whole Bible, the only people who mention it is Matthew and Luke. It's only mentioned two times. Uh, and Paul never, never mentioned it. Well, how many times does it have to be mentioned in the Bible for it to be true? It was mentioned twice. You only have to mention it once for it to be true. These are two different guys who mentioned it and talked about the virgin birth. <clears throat> and we see that this Luke wrote the gospel, this passage, from Mary's viewpoint. Many, many believed, uh, Mary believed the virgin birth because she experienced it. And we see it in the text of Luke as he wrote from her perspective. Another idea that, comes, that is attacked, uh, the virgin birth, is a philosophical attack and a scientific attack. They'll say, well, that's contrary to the laws of nature. It's just impossible that anyone, any female can, can birth a baby without um, a sperm and an egg. And a person's attitude towards scientific possibility of the virgin birth is going to depend on some general assumptions they have about their world, the way they see the world, the way they see God's revelation, the way they believe, what they believe about miracles, whether they believe that the scripture is inerrant or not. And so from those beginning assumptions, you can determine what they will, what they will decide to believe. And if we believe in the deity of Christ and we believe in the miracles that are in Scripture and we believe in the inherency of Scripture, then we, then we can agree that two of our Gospels teach the virgin birth. Therefore, there must be something there to be believed. <clears throat> but there are reasons why. Let me give you a couple of reasons why a man could not be involved in this. Here, the unique feature of Jesus' conception was that it was supernatural, not of human generation. Now, the thing is, there's no magic here. There's no witchcraft here. There's no fantasy here. There's no legend here. This is a fact. Mary did not conceive by way of a man. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and verse 25. Mary conceived by way of the Holy Spirit who fathered Jesus' humanity. Matthew 1, 20, Luke 1, 35. So Jesus' prenatal development in the womb, within Mary, and the birth were natural processes, we know, from Luke 1, 57 and 2, verse 7. He was there for, he developed there for nine months, like every other baby. But his conception was radically different. The Holy Spirit produced of Mary's substance a complete human nature consisting of body, soul, and spirit. We see that in Matthew 26, verse 12, verse 38, chapter 27, verse 50. Thus the Holy Spirit was, in a sense, the father of Jesus' human nature. And so, so we see this. And here's another reason a man could not be involved in the virgin birth. Because Jesus' personhood did not begin at his conception. Jesus' person and his divine nature existed from all eternity. Colossians chapter 1 tells us he was present at creation and was involved in the creation. Micah 5.2, Galatians 4.4, 4, Colossians 1.15-20, 1, John 1.1, 1, 1, 
John 8, 42. Jesus did not acquire another personhood when he was conceived, but he became, so that he became some kind of combination of two persons, one divine, one human. No, 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 none of that is true. Rather, he, he acquired at conception a human nature so that they were both united in him, his deity in one person, nature of God, nature of man. And this acquisition made him the God-man so that he could be 100% God and 100% man as one person. That's why the angel says in chapter 1, verse 35, that which is conceived in Mary's womb is that holy thing or that holy one. The gender in the text is neuter. It's not male and it's not female. It's indicating that Mary gave Jesus only his human nature, not his personhood, not his divine nature, simply gave him his DNA. Another reason is that Mary bore this. So this is the point that I want you to get. Mary bore a human male child who was already the second person of the Trinity. She is not the mother of God. Jesus, as our Lord, came into human history from the outside. So he must come into me from the outside. When I receive him as my personal Lord and Savior, I, he must come from the outside. I can't enter into the realm of the kingdom of God unless I am born from above by a birth that's totally unlike a natural birth. Ye must be born again, is what Jesus said, right? That's not a command. That's a foundational fact. If you want to be a part of the kingdom, you must be born again. The characteristic of the new birth is that I yield myself, like Mary, so completely to God that Christ is formed in me. So immediately when Christ is formed in me, his nature begins to work in me. That's the nature of salvation. Have you done that? Have you yielded yourself to Christ? If you have, then you can fear not. If you haven't, then you should have great fear because of your eternal destiny. And so today is a great day for you to make Christ your Lord. Number five, the fifth thing is that Jesus' conception didn't have any corruption involved. There was no corruption involved in his conception. The angel said in verse 35, that holy one who is to be born will be called the Son of God. A sinner cannot pay the debt, the sin debt for another sinner. A sinner has to pay his own sin debt. Uh, I, can't pay your, I can't die for you and pay your sin debt because I'm a sinner myself. Only someone who does not have sin can pay the sin debt for another. And so Jesus, when he was conceived, preserved his sinlessness, qualifying him to make atonement for the sin of the whole world. The virgin birth is important because if it's not true, he was not perfectly sinless in order to provide for the sin of the whole world. Jesus' unique conception prevented his receiving from a human parent the inerrant, the inherent corruption of sin. And from the father, from his father, he did not receive that federal guilt of Adam's initial sin. 
You read about it yourself in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 19. So being absolutely sinless, Jesus was able to pay for us our terrible sin debt and our burden of sin. Now, the point is that though the Son of Mary as such stands with us in solidarity with sinners, he who began no sin became sin for us. His real birth is directly from God, so that unlike all the others, he himself is not a sinner. He has come to bear the sin in God's own work of salvation. So a man born in the normal way could have been one with sinners, but he could not have been the sinless sin bearer. The sinless sin bearer comes into the world in such a way that he is also one with man, he's a human being, yet there is a decisive break in him with the old humanity, but at the same time he has continuity with it, he goes along with it. He's not a sinful man accomplishing in a more worthy representative his own salvation. He is the second man, the last Adam, the Lord from heaven, the Son of Man. He's the Son of God incarnate for us men and women and for our salvation. The sixth thing that we see here is that Jesus' conception overcame the impossible. It overcame what was impossible. She's the, the, you notice that the angel says in verse 37, For nothing is impossible with God. You see that? What's harder? For an old woman to give birth... Or for a virgin to give birth. Elizabeth is too old to give birth. Mary, just entering her teen years, betrothed, not yet wed, she's too young. God takes the impossible and the unlikely and uses them extraordinarily. Mary's miracle is intended to be greater and to surpass Elizabeth's miracle because Jesus is greater than John. Amen. I want to note the similarity also because you should hear echoes in the Bible. You should hear echoes of, of another person who was, who was expecting a child. Sarai, Sarah, the wife of Abraham. She was too impossibly old to bear a child. We see in Genesis chapter 18. So much so that when... The three visitors visited Abraham and said, your wife's next year will come, come back and your wife's going to have a child. And she was inside the tent and she died laughing. <laughs> she just laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed because she said, that's impossible. And uh, the visitor said, you laughed. And she said, I didn't laugh. He said, yes, you did laugh. Mary has more faith than the mother of Israel, Sarah. Because she believes that God will give birth to a child through a virgin. The virgin birth is a historical fact. And it is a non-negotiable in our faith. Jesus' conception was without the agency of a man. It was free from the sin of corruption. But he was a fully human descendant and an heir of David. He was the last Adam... Yet he did not have the federal guilt of Adam's initial sin in the Garden of Eden. Notice that she says, I am the Lord's servant. Notice that what Mary did not say. 
I'm always struck by that. Mary didn't say, well, how am I going to explain this to Joseph? Mary didn't say, how will this affect my reputation with my friends and my family? Mary did not say, you mean I'm going to be pregnant and unmarried? No. Mary gave a humble answer. She expressed her humility in the Old Testament terms of the of submission. Just like Hannah, who used the same phrase in 1 Samuel chapter 1. The same way that Abigail submitted to King David. Being the servant of God is a significant thing. Because the first servant mentioned in the Bible, the first servant of God mentioned in the Bible is Abraham. He's an example of a person who believes and God granted to him righteousness. And now Luke refers to Mary as a servant. This is very important. Humility and willingness. Listen to this. This is important. Humility and willingness to be used by God. They are the qualifiers. When you're Humility and willingness, that's the qualifier to be used by God. Not education, not your talent, not your gifts. One great leadership person, John Maxwell, says, your gifts and your talents can take you where your character cannot keep you. You can have great gifts and talents, but if you don't have the character to handle that position, you won't remain there. And you will end it in dishonor. So here's a question as I close. Did Jesus carry Mary's DNA? Did he carry her genetic data? The short answer is yes, he did. There are two reasons why he carried her DNA. The, there's, uh, the first reason is scriptural. It's the more important. The second one is a scientific reason. So he had to carry Mary's DNA in order to fulfill Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. What he said to the serpent. He will bruise and, and tread your head underfoot and you will lie in wait and bruise his heel. Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 verse 16... Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one and to your capital S seed, that is Christ. Galatians 4.4, 4, Paul says, but when the proper time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born subject to the regulations of the law. The second reason is simply speculative science. Because God is sovereign, he can do whatever he wants to do. But we have learned enough in the field of medicine about the natural processes involved in fertilization. And we can understand this process. We know from that field that when fertilization takes place, the father's mitochondrial DNA is not passed on to the children. Mitochondrial DNA is passed only through the female from one generation to the next. Now, what is mitochondria? Mitochondria is the, is the generator, the powerhouse of every cell in your body. 
It causes the body to respire aerobically and it regulates how your body processes food and oxygen and all of the things that are going on. It, ca- it causes it to, to enter respiration and to aero- aerobically respire. Without mitochondria, human tissue would be unable to sustain its metabolic pathway. Without the mother's mitochondria, a new baby inside the womb, their tissue would produce so much heat it would boil. But the mitochondria regulates that respiration to keep all of that running correctly. And Jesus received Mary's mitochondrial DNA just like you received your mother's mitochondrial DNA which keeps you from boiling. So unless the Lord would have overruled that process, then Jesus carries Holy Spirit overshadowed human mitochondrial DNA from Mary, what the theologians call human nature, from his mother Mary, descended from Nathan, who is the son of David. And that, my friends, tells us that we can fear not because of Christ's conception was free of the corruption of sin. You can be confident in your salvation and in your eternal security. May God bless the reading and teaching and preaching of his word. of the virgin birth you can trust the word of god you can trust your eternal security you can trust that you are saved you can trust that you are forgiven you can trust that jesus is lord hope you enjoyed this podcast Uh, this podcast can be heard on spotify on google and also on apple podcasts Uh, look for it anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. This is Voices Along the Way. I'm Gene Brooks.